are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I work at Bethany College. My favorite Halloween decoration is a giant hairy spider that my wife got pretty early on when we were married. And it's motion censored so that when someone walks up to the door, it goes, (laughs) but you don't know it's going to do that. And it also shakes and it terrifies small children because it's like the size of the small child. (laughs) And is it in the big, uh, big, like web? Yeah, we we usually put it in a big web Um, Mm -hmm. and then it makes the whole web vibrate, too. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) it's made toddlers cry at our door, which I think is the goal of Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. And my favorite Halloween decoration is probably anything skeleton but especially those skeletons that like sit in the rocking chairs on the front porch and just kind of like look out over the street watching people walk by they may or may not have motion sensors in them but they still have life in them Hmm. ian benz associate professor of elementary science education at unc charlotte uh my favorite Halloween decoration, and we don't really decorate in our house, but I love walking through the neighborhood and just just seeing which house goes the most crazy, right? And how impressive it is. Almost like, you know, from uh, Home Improvement, that show when they would always go bonkers. It's like the TV shows always do the best Halloween things. Um, I love to see if houses come up with something like that. So... It, it just varies every year on what my favorite would be, which is not really answering the question. But as I said, I'm a little tired today. A little, a little punchy. Going to break the rules. All right, Adam. Yeah. So. Okay. So to segue uh, into. There's no, there's no good segue. <laughs> no. Um, so as we've been like, um, as we've been talking about. Uh, religion and mental health uh, and issues of mental wellness um, and in particular sort of focusing on different aspects of that um, the area that I was most interested in when we started talking about taking this up were um, areas of, of uh, mental health mental wellness where we we really look at ways in which the world gets sees, seen differently um, and so the one that comes to mind for me always sort of right out of the gate um, is thinking about the autism Asperger's spectrum. And a big part of that was um, in the summers, my wife wisely requires me to read some things that are not theology, um, <laughs> especially when I was doing my PhD because I was a little monomaniacal. Um, and so occasionally she would go to the library and just bring something back and be like, just read this and stop for a while. <laughs> That's a great um, idea. And, and she still does that, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Cause Anne yeah, does that for me. Yeah. There's a, there's a rule of how many workbooks I am allowed to take on vacation. Good. That's um, good. yeah. Yeah. Kendra, listen. Yeah. It, 
continues to get smaller and more irritating, but that's a different thing. So, um, uh, so anyway, this, this one year we were, we were there and she was like, you should read this book. I've, it, I just finished it. It looks really, really good. And it was, um, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime by Mark Haddon, um, which has now become a play. Uh, as well, but I I kind of encountered it as the book, and the idea is that it's it's a mystery novel about the death of a dog, unsurprisingly. Um, but the the central narrator is Christopher, who is a fifteen year old boy, and Christopher, it, you learn as the book goes on, is sort of dealing with a non specific version of Asperger's uh, autism spectrum. Um, and the author is just deeply clever about the ways of revealing these different uh, experiences of the world that he has, right? So um, the like I, I remember um, sitting and being both like irritated and sort of in awe of when the chapters suddenly skipped. So there was one, two, three, and then it went to five, and there was no four. And I was, like, bamboozled, and I kept flipping through the book and trying to figure out what was going on. And all of the chapters are prime numbers, right? So there's these little little details, huh. right, that are intentionally put into the book to sort of create this, this sort of effect. What struck me about this is that um, – Maybe a little different than some of the other um, disorders we've spoken about, but in some ways that are resonant as well. Um, autism Asperger spectrum has a, I would argue, a, a generally more positive place in public discourse than some other mental health issues that we've that we've discussed. But also, there's this sort of interesting overlap with how it is that we raise up or minimize the voices of folks who have these experiences. Part of what struck me the very first time I was reading this book um, as being so important was that it did two things that I think are really impactful and important for thinking about in terms of religion and mental health. Um, One uh, was that it humanized um, the experience of living with Asperger's autism in a way that as you were reading the book, the book wasn't about someone with Asperger's. It was about Christopher, right? And I thought that was really important and effective to remember, right? The second piece that I thought was really, really, really interesting out of that was that it I found it at least sort of strangely affecting my teaching um, and the ways in which I thought about engaging um, other students in the classroom. Um, And this is the part that I don't, you know, it's not totally worked out, but one of the the pieces that I thought was really interesting and that is really important for me as I start thinking about religion and mental health is that um, we we make intentional choices about how how to lift up or how to cast to the side 
non-normative experiences. Um, and religion, science, and I would argue higher education have a lot of roles in the ways we choose to or don't choose to do that. Um, and so I found this book really meaningful and moving to me because it forced me to look at the ways in which um, I was treating um, non-neurotypical students in ways that treated them as a disease vector in the classroom, <laughs> not a human being. Um, so what's attracted me to sort of like thinking about autism, why I wanted to sort of pick this particular topic is that I think there have been so many really interesting uh, accountings of trying to help people understand um, what experiencing the world from this perspective is like in a way that's maybe a little different than other mental health pieces, right? So like, yeah, I read The Curious Incident of the Dog of the Night, but there are things like The Good Doctor. There have been blogs um, from Autism Speaks that really, really work on helping uh, people understand the variety of ways that this, um, this experience occurs. And also, which I think is interesting, whether or not it should be cured and what that even means is really, really difficult when you talk about um, this topic. So um, I'm a little sad that Zach and Rachel aren't here because I wanted to like really poke at like, boy, I bet that's different in a <clears throat> religious community setting than it is where I am. But um, I'm curious um, just to sort of like start with like what have been your experiences with working with folks who would quote unquote be non-neurotypical? Yeah, I I could say just, um, you know, what I was thinking of when you were talking um, or, or not necessarily the, the people that I know personally who are you know, not neurotypical, but like people I know people I know who I'm close to who are close to people with autism um, and listening to the way that they have spoken about autism, um, like in my presence over the last, I don't know, five or so years and how that has just been really um, interesting and eye-opening for me in some of the ways that you're talking about, Adam, uh, of just like, you know, asking these bigger questions about what autistic people um, like how autistic people see the world and how um that like there are um aspects of that like way of being in the world that it doesn't quite make sense for us to like pathologize <laughs> in the ways that we have and um and so you know I, I i don't i don't know that i am aware of anyone that I'm close to who has autism. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it has been really enlightening, I guess, to hear people talk about the ways, um, in which autistic people have like sometimes a very hyper logical way of seeing the world and how that could, you know, be, um, uh, like useful in different like problem solving settings that it's just like a different kind of like mental um proclivity that like not everyone has even 
even if you're just talking about like neurotypical people. Um, and so, you know, they're uh, like the neurodiversity of people. Uh, there are there are there are other like forms of neurodiversity that we just have decided to like not categorize for whatever reason. And so um, autism is something that we've like noticed as a pattern and have categorized it as autism. But if you think about what it means to be neurotypical in this like much broader sense and like what neurodiversity is in this broader sense, then it just makes sense. Like it's just intuitive to, um, to think that like, okay, we talk about people being like right-brained or left-brained um, and it would be probably odd for a lot of us to be like, oh, the right-brained people are, you know, they have a disease or something. Um, and what we, you know, is like not, not to diminish the like difficult aspects of someone living with autism because there's like, you know, definitely it's just true that like the system's not really <laughs> built to um, accommodate them. And so that leads to a lot of problems for them in, in the classroom and at work and in relationships. And so there's definitely, like, that's definitely there, but it's just interesting to think about how, like, maybe, maybe we could have systems in education and at work that actually did accommodate um, neurodiversity, um, you know, autism being an example of that. Um, and, you know, maybe we could have systems that accommodate these people. And how would that, how would that make the world different? How would that, how would that change like our social structures if we were including people who see the world really differently um, as people that were like in charge or had power in various ways to, to make us who we are. And, and so that I just think is like an endlessly fascinating question, um, especially listening to people, um, you know, try to like answer that question when they are living in like very close proximity to um, people who are very neurodiverse neuro, um, in, in different ways. No, so what I was like, what I was thinking about, um, Kendra, it's it's that question of pathologizing that I think is really, really interesting, right? And how we choose to, um, how we choose to pathologize, and what the consequence of pathologizing various mental health orders or disorders is is I think really, really interesting, and at least so far as we've been talking about this, right? When we've talked about depression, when we've talked about anxiety, the way in which those get pathologized feels a little different than something like autism Asperger's spectrum. Can you um, unpack that? What makes it feel different? So, well, and that's like part of what I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it because, <laughs> but each, like each week we've been talking about it, I'm going like, this is, there, there's something here that's not quite the same, right? So like, there's an element with, like, Ian, when both you and Zach have talked about anxiety and depression, right? Mm -hmm. There's a social stigma that this is inherently unacceptable. Right. And there's sort of this element of, like, I'm, I'll put it crassly, like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you'll be fine. Get over it. 
get over it, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with like autism, Asperger spectrum disorder, there's a little bit less of the like get over it element, right? But also, right, there's this like very clear element that like people would be comfortable with me talking about someone with Asperger autism spectrum as non-neurotypical. And I don't know if somebody would be comfortable with with me saying like, oh, you suffer from depression, you're not neurotypical, right? Like there's even this like disjuncture in the language of how it gets pathologized that I think is really, is really fascinating um, and makes me wonder are the, the ways that we talk about those, um, the, the ways that we talk about the impact of religion and science on that intersection with these mental health issues does that just look really different um, in terms of how to how to move forward? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I like, do you think, Adam, that um, because I, I also have that sense of like there's something different here. But as you're asking the question, I'm wondering, like, is, is it in part wrapped up with the fact that things like depression and anxiety they're more um, centralized in like the emotional aspect of a person's being, whereas something like autism or, um, you know, various other um, conditions are more, uh, I'm not sure how to say it, but like mental is not quite the right word, but like they're, they're more integrated into like every aspect of a person's being and it's not necessarily just about like um an emotional like disorder disordered experience but it's like the way that you think the way that you feel the way that you take social cues the way that you you know like other behaviors that are not necessarily emotional uh you know at their core um but things like depression and anxiety um, I see those as much more um, emotional in nature. And and I think this like piece of how um, like religious, I mean, not even just like religious people and traditions would maybe talk about them is that um, it, it maybe feels more acceptable to be like, oh, someone with depression and anxiety, like this is, this is not actually like a part of who you are. We, we, you know, can like help you we can pray for you. We can, you know, get you counseling, do all these things to help restore you to like your person. Whereas I think not that people wouldn't also say that about other things like autism or other, other conditions, but I think the approach in general would, would feel a little different. It's like, Oh, this is who you are. So let's just accept you and love you and try to find a way to integrate you into our community um, in a way that is like, um, loving and compassionate is like the kind of language difference that I would anticipate. Well, I also wonder too, the idea that when we think about anxiety and depression, it, at least the, the thought is from, from some people is that like, so for me, or I want to talk about me, um, I have not had to deal with anxiety my entire life. It has not always been part of my life, right? Um, I still also deal with depression, and that has not been part of my my entire existence. Um, whereas, 
um, someone who either is, you know, either has Asperger's or, um, autism that, you know, the, and, and, you know, to my special ed friends out there, um, may want to beat me up later. I'm sorry for lack of a better understanding of the language to use and everything, but you know, that it's almost like, well, that's something you're born with, or that's just part of who you are from the very beginning or, or something along those lines. Right. And so, um, that there's a distinction there that people may view it as, I'm not saying that's accurate, but I'm just wondering if that's part of the thing of, as you, as we were talking about, you know, toughen up when it comes to anxiety or depression is the mentality that some have. Whereas with Asperger's or autism or something like that, it's, you don't approach it that way. Right. Cause it's part of your identity of who you are. Yeah. That yeah. That sense. was, that was basically what I was saying. But I also want to add that, um, like I, I think that there, it would be, um, this is something I, I think that Zach, um, especially would, have something to say um but i think people who have like severe chronic depression and have like had it since their early life would maybe resist the idea that like that's um not inherently like part of who they are um that's that's not the way that i tend to think about it or or have like tended to talk about it but i wonder if that's uh the case for for someone like that and and with anxiety too but um i think like what i've tended to experience and notice in um most of the people that i know who uh, deal with those things is that even in chronic cases um there are like there are highs and lows and you know it's it's yeah it's just usually spoken about in these different ways yeah and just as a caveat or or a disclaimer um, to anyone listening, please understand that you know I personally have been on some form of an antidepressant most of my life. Um, so I do not, you know, my uh, perspective a minute ago is not something that I necessarily hold to. I just wanted to say that that you know that is not how I view um, anxiety or depression. You know, and we have had conversations before about when it comes to like antidepressant medication and stuff like that. Does that when I'm on that? Does that is that the real me? Right. We've had those types of conversations in the past and how I am adamant that, yes, that is the real me, um, because that's the me that I want to be with. Right. So anyway, I think there's this like question of identity that is wrapped up in all of the versions of like how we've talked about the intersection of religion and science with mental health that I think is really important and interesting. And so like, you know coming back to the curious incident of the dog in the night, right? Like despite my wife's best efforts immediately after that, like I was deeply, deeply curious about like disability studies and disability theology. And like, I just spent a lot of time immediately <laughs> diving into this. <clears throat> so doesn't work, but, um, and what was the name of the book again? The curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Okay. Thanks. Um, so, and in, in what strikes me um, about that, and, and to me, the resources that religious traditions have been producing in disability theology over the past 25 or 30 years in particular are so important, are just so important for, for helping folks start to tease out 
how it is that we we talk about this intersection of identity and disability and pathology in ways that can be really effective, but also really challenging, right? Like, to my mind, the fact that we're having this conversation and it's really hard to figure out like, well, where do I categorize this? Like, you know, as human beings, we like nice, neat boxes that we can put these things into, right? And I think one of the really important things that disability studies has done and disability theology in particular has done has said, hey, look, those narratives that we've had in our traditions about healing and wellness and improvement and salvation even can have really detrimental effects on the way that we think about and pathologize those who don't fit into the norm, Um, both in terms of physical health, but also mental health um, in ways that can be either really helpful or really destructive. So like early on, Kendra, you mentioned this, like, it made me think of like doing like a thought experiment, right? Like what, (laughs) what would it start to look like if um, your social structures around you were designed for and put in place to facilitate um, engagement with folks who are non-neurotypical, right? Like, and I guess this is sort of like a, this is both a something I think about a lot now that I do, I don't know, administrative things, but also like I think a lot about in terms of like religious communities, right? Like what are the things that we do that, accidentally exclude people even though that's not what we mean to do oh i think that happens all the time yeah i mean i, I think so it's too. The, the reflective process is what makes it challenging because you have to really be willing to look at yourself to see how do you do that which i think takes a level of vulnerability because you're at least to yourself admitting that oh I, I put people in boxes by others, by other people. Right. I, and I'm, I guess there's like part of me that starts to wonder then like, what's the role of religious communities in facilitating changes in that regard? Like what are the steps that we would want? None of us are, you know, clergy, but I look at it sort of to go, you know, maybe into our own context too. Like, what are the things that we would look at around us and go like, oh, that would really need to change? <laughs> well, so so for me, and this will actually tie into the, the book I want to talk about near the end of the show, um, is over the past year, and especially throughout the pandemic, you know, I've really struggled with how people, you know, aspects of society have approached the pandemic. Um, with the uh, um, lack of empathy for others, right? And lack, what I perceive as a lack of caring. Um, and it has led, especially you know, with it coinciding with such a toxic political time frame in our country, for me to have very judgmental views of others, not necessarily other people that I disagree with politically, um, like someone who identifies as Republican versus Democrat, that's, that's not it. It's more of the extremes. Right. And so I have found that I'm 
in a place where I struggle with that a, a lot. And so I've purposely been selecting different books and different resources to read as a way to get back to the point where while um, I may disagree completely with someone and what it is they believe and stand for, that I can still see them as a person, right? Not less than, uh, not inherently evil or something like that, that I, you know, but I'm aware of that. As I said, you have to be aware of those types of things happening. Yeah, I I mean, I guess when I think about like a religious context, again, not a clergy person, but, it, you know, if we're talking about like autistic people in particular, I did attend um, a church. This was when I was in undergrad, um, a church, and uh, there was... There was a, a young man who um, started coming really regularly to um, the college ministry stuff um, who was on the autism spectrum. And um, I think that, you know, kind of reflecting on that experience and just what it felt like on a Sunday morning to, you know, to speak with him and to like watch him interact with other people. Um, I think that like using um, the autism spectrum as an example, the greeting time in the morning uh, in like religious spaces. And again, you could apply this to other organizations in which there's like this kind of loose social time of interaction where people are expected to greet each other or, you know, and in like a conference context to like network with each other. Um, Like, what is that? What does that look like and how do you be uh, um, accommodating or like welcoming to someone who might like say something unexpected to you and if you're like expecting a neurotypical person to be in those interactions you might respond differently or be like uh, feel something like off-putting or you know I don't know feel awkward um, in a way that like shuts down this possibility for a relationship. Um, and I, I think I noticed, uh, in general, like years ago attending, um, this church that people, I think for the most part really leaned into it. It was like, Oh, good morning. Let's talk about the 20 pages of like song lyrics that you wrote last night. And like, let's like do a deep dive. (laughs) And that was just like this kind of, um, particular interaction that you would have with this person. And, you know, maybe the next person you spoke to was just a brief handshake and like a good morning. (laughs) Um, but it's just, I don't even know like how to speak about that in terms of like a system change. Um, but it's just, I think kind of a letting go of like expectations of what someone should like offer you or like bring to you and I don't I don't think that's always very easy to do and it's also like kind of exhausting to do that if you are in a space where you're talking to like hundreds of people so you know like it's I think it's a hard question to figure out what that would mean 
to make a, 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 a shift or like a transformation on a, a structural level. Um, so I, I don't know, like that's what I think of when I'm thinking of like the religious context, um, just like that particular example. But then I think in the academic context, like in my teaching, um, which, you know, there's like a lot of things about being like a, in my first year as a professor that I like, I'm learning a lot about like my own pedagogy and what's working and not working. And one of the things that I always feel very sensitive to, um, because of my own experience as an undergrad and graduate student are just people who are, uh, like a little bit, either like a little bit or definitely diagnosed um, or somewhere in between, uh, really struggle with like ADD, ADHD type symptoms. Um, and I think like that's, that's uh, it just changes the way, like you have students who are gonna like read every single word of a page and always do the reading like three weeks early and like come to class and like know exactly what they wanna say. And then there are people who are just like perpetual, like strategic skimmers and are, you know, like they have questions, but they kind of come in the moment and it's not, it's kind of hard to like prepare how to like engage in the classroom. Um, and then, you know, there's like students who are just like disengaged, they don't care. Um, there's like, you know, a lot of things going on or maybe they're just lazy. Um, like there's a there's a bunch of different student experiences, but I um, I feel that like I have always sort of struggled with the, um, like I, I don't have a diagnosis of ADHD, but I have struggled enough with like symptoms of that, that I have been tested and have like tried different like medication and stuff for it. It's also the case that like women are in general, like less likely to have a diagnosis for that kind of thing. Um, but it's been uh, an inflamed part of my experience as a student during my PhD work, especially. Um, and so I just feel like when I'm in the classroom, I try to figure out a way to like reward the students who are doing all the things like clearly excellent students and then reward the students who are really trying, but they just like, there's just something about the process of like being a student that's really difficult, but they're putting in the effort and they're showing up and they're trying to participate. And so to like do things in class that are engaging and that allow you to enter into the conversation, even if you didn't read and like remember every single person's name and every date and like, you know, all the like super specific details that some students that feels natural to them. Um, and, and so I don't know, like, I, I feel like that's the example that comes to mind. Cause it's like in this, I think conversation of like neurodiversity, um, but you know, a different kind than what we've been talking about, but just figuring out how to like have something for everyone to the extent that they feel that they belong either in the conversation or in the religious community or whatever it is. And that's really not easy to do. <laughs> um, but I think it's worth it if the goal is community, if the goal is 
inclusion. Um, if those are really central goals to your organization or religious tradition or whatever, then you have to do those things. And you have to figure out, I think, like how to reasonably pursue those goals always. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Those are, those are the things that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, it's interesting that the, like the, the two things that, that stand out to me are like the conversation can kind of, um, broaden or narrow, right? Because there are certain elements that I think overlap anytime you're trying to figure out how to discuss engaging neurodiversity, right? Even if it's different types of neurodiversity, but also, right, there's this element of being really aware that the, that the specific dimensions of that neurodiversity matter for what any, like whatever practical steps you would take. Um, lest I don't answer my own question. Um, yeah. Adam. Uh, I mean, you've never done that. No, <laughs> it's not like I, it's not like I make a habit of doing that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, the, the piece that has come to mind for me, the more that I've thought about this and I think just by sheer happenstance, I have ended up almost every semester that I have been teaching like on a regular basis. I have had a small not a majority by any stretch of the imagination, but a small cadre of students who are not neurotypical. Um, in fact, this may be the, like the first semester where I don't. Um, and it's felt kind of weird. Um, but I think one of the, the things that I've noticed about myself in those contexts is trying to ask over and over, what are the expectations that I have of this situation that privilege people like me. That if you were just a little bit more like me, you'd do better here. Um, and how is it that I, what then is my responsibility to try and create a situation where I minimize that as much as possible? So the two instances that have come to mind for me are like, um, and I notice I just try really hard not to do it anymore, but um, in religious communities where I've been a participant, and I know there are folks, in this case, generally around Asperger's Autism Spectrum Disorder, that um, are non-neurotypical, um, the, the question that keeps coming up for me is, why do we preach every week? That seems really silly. <laughs> And not a great way of interacting with those folks as part of the community. And I don't know, at least for me, having a week off from somebody giving a sermon feels like a good idea because that, that's not my jam. Um, and in a similar way, right? Like when I think about like my time in the classroom, I think about in real instances, right? Like, where are the places that my my expectations about, well, you would just do a little bit better if you could read the text more like me or if you could sit still long enough, Ian, to actually just engage the way that I want you to engage, um, right? Like I, I, 
I find myself doing that. And like, for me, the step that comes out of this is to say like, how do I, how do I prevent myself from, uh, asshole mansplaining? Yeah. Uh, before we continue, Adam, I just just want to say, Adam, I I still love you, buddy. It's all good. It's okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) but I, (laughs) so even though you call me out, you know, and everyone can hear it, it's okay. You know, it's it's good. People don't see that Ian just wanders around while we're doing this. Uh, yeah, I'm still listening though. But if I get hungry, I got to eat. <laughs> just I know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think wireless headphones were designed just for you. Um, <laughs> this is probably true. Yeah, if the wired ones I had were noise canceling, I think I would probably pay attention a whole lot better to life. Right. So, yeah. Anyway. No, but it, so these are, the, these are the things that like I think about when I when I when I think about this piece, and it in terms of the religion and science conversation, I think the the question that comes to mind are like um, one, how do religious traditions decide whether or not they're responsible to folks in their communities who are not neurotypical? Like, like what does it really mean to take responsibility for that? Um, so that's one side. And then the other is, which we didn't talk a lot about today, but that's okay. Cause there are always ways to talk about this. Like, um, how much does science give us an out? I, ca- I kind of wonder if science is giving us a get out of jail free card, right? Insofar as it lets us pathologize things. Um, right. Like I can only call out Ian if I pathologize the behavior that he's doing in a certain way which science lets me do a lot better than I could previously. Mm-hmm. And, and like that tension is something that like, as we talk about like other elements of mental health and religion and science, like I'm, I'm real interested in, in trying to tease that out um, in large part because I, I don't, I think it's really hard to do. Um. And it's not something that's like intuitive to us. Like I can't rely on my common sense to find a way out of that. Um, And also like they're not my stories. I am like a remarkably weirdly neurotypical white cisgendered reader of texts who the system was designed for. Like if anybody should be able to be successful in it, it would be, you know, the guy given all of the privileges that <laughs> the system was designed to foster and develop. So how it is and what then my responsibility is as I hear narratives that don't fit that neurotypical um, neurotypical schema is, is, I think, really, really important. Yeah. Because it can't, it can't just be the job of folks who aren't neurotypical to advocate for themselves. <laughs> right. And and that question is such a, you know, like to what extent does science give us an out? It's, it's just so hard because that, that feels like a question that is like this universal question um, when in fact, like there's so much about the context in which you're in um, that I think changes the way that you might pathologize this behavior in one setting, but in another, maybe not so much. (laughs) Um, 
And that, you know, like, I, I think that's why uh, there's there's something really valuable about, um, you know, the the like quizzes. I mean, some of them are not that good, but like quizzes or just like databases that try to connect people to different vocational goals based on um, personality characteristics is one thing, but, you know, like tendencies towards certain behaviors. Um, and I don't know, like I, I sort of see that as this like soft way of trying to address this issue of like where you fit. <laughs> like if you're someone who is high energy and easily distracted and you like love to talk to people, um, maybe you shouldn't be like doing super mundane tasks in a dark office in the corner, never having to speak to a human for like 16 hours of your, <laughs> you know, day, um, like things like that, that are really simple. And I think kind of taken for granted sometimes as this like fun little self-reflective task, but I actually think there's like, may maybe it's things like that, that are just resources available per, for people and to get people to self-reflect in a more serious way about what your own strengths and weaknesses are and to not pathologize something that is a weakness and to not like overvalue something that is like labeled a strength, but just to understand that like these are your strengths and weaknesses in this role. <laughs> um, and to just, I don't know, like change the way that we value different behaviors and skills um, because there are so many different ways to apply those um, behaviors and skills in different like vocational, organizational, like family, social contexts. Um, and so I, I think to some extent like that, that will never be this simple question. It will entirely depend on how much time we're willing to invest in helping people develop self-reflective skills to put themselves or like, you know, attempt to put themselves in situations that benefit their own like proclivities um, intellectually and emotionally and physically and all of those all of those things. Um, so it's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work and people like, it's, it, it's so easy to not want to do that work because you have to kind of give attention to like every person and you can't rely on these generalizations, but like, it's just the nature of being human and using language. We do generalize, we do other people because it's convenient. And that sometimes is like, easy and necessary to do in certain situations. So it's like this constant tension of, um, you know, meeting the needs of the particular versus the, you know, general. <laughs> well, and that can be exhausting, right? Too. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of effort, but then can be tiring when you're trying to put forth that effort for others, right? Especially if you, if you go all in, um, and you're always trying to, to be that way. Yeah, it can be tiring. And some people, you know, and there are times where I've just been, you know, you fall back on the generalizations of type uh, of different people just because it's easier. Um, but then you realize, too, that if there if it's a particular topic of something that you're focusing on as a way to instill some sort of change um, in people's behaviors, including your own, uh, then you realize you need to 
you know, take that step back momentarily, but then get, get back to it, to the work, to the hard work. So, you know, so it goes away from that whole notion of othering people who are different. Well, we should probably, uh, move on to the ending part of the episode. Do you Zach want to say anything? Edit that into, no, I don't want to say anything. Why would you I want to say something? I don't want to make it with... easy for him. I want him. I want him to really struggle with how it is that he's going to try and wrap that up. <laughs> he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> I'm not going okay. to give him anything easy by which by which to do that. <laughs> and you know, in good fashion, he probably should just leave this as my closing remarks so that everybody knows that it was my fault. <laughs> I, I've done as much cheery, happy as I could do today, and so I need <laughs> some suffering to come out of this episode. And that we're really proud felt of like you, the best. I am proud of you, buddy. Are you going to go throw up after this? Probably. I mean, I, it's, it's probably going to be like rainbows and sparkles. I mean, <laughs> that's how you got to end it. In fact, that could be part of the title: rainbows. And <laughs> so, okay. Uh, so for my little tidbit at the end, my little thing I want to focus on, and I'll try it uh, once or twice just to see how it works, is I want to do a um, kind of talk about and reflect on a book that I either am currently reading or have recently finished reading. Um, and uh, yeah, so the book that I chose today actually um, is called, I'll hold it up for the two of you, but You Belong, A Call for Connection. Um, by Seven A. Selassie. She is, um, her description down here on the bottom, I love this, nerdy black immigrant tomboy Buddhist weirdo, which is how she describes herself. But uh, I learned of Seven A. Selassie um, from 10% Happier. She's one of, she's actually the most popular coach on 10% Happier. Um, and I, um, one of the, there are many meditations near the beginning that I really liked that she did, but it was actually one of her, she's very much into uh, social justice work and um, has a fascinating background. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the meditations I did with 10% Happier that made me shift away from other meditation resources was one that she did about racism. Um, and it was a very, it was a 20 minute guided meditation that was a very deep dive into racism and, and trying to, um, you had to be willing to deal with your own level of vulnerability, um, because it was not a deep dive necessarily into societal racism or where it comes from, but looking within and reflecting on yourself. Um, and so it was raw and it was incredible because I just loved how she approached it. And then I learned, uh, of the book that she was working on this book called you belong, and instead of kind of, you know, start taking all these different notes last night that I had written throughout the book, but, um, I just want to kind of give the general idea of, of what her whole argument is and what she's trying to point out, um, is that she talks about in here, um, when she says you belong uh, is recognizing what the whole point of belonging is. And so she says early on. Uh, belonging is truth, and it is the fundamental nature of reality right here and now, whether we feel it or not. 
And so what she's trying to argue throughout this entire text is that belonging is everywhere. It is natural. It happens. Um, everything is connected. And she very nicely kind of throughout the entire text does a very good job of talking about how um, more uh, things like um, ancient ways of knowing ancient wisdom um, that, you know, the more scientifically minded individuals would say is not real. So, you know, based on either, you know, something from different religious perspectives or indigenous perspectives and how um, modern science is starting to show, you know, the notion of connection uh, that everything is connected. And we've known that for a while now based on science, but that how that's been an argument or a part of the belief that people would call it based system within different, um, as I said, you know, religious traditions or cultural traditions that have been going on for centuries, if not millennia about this connection to everything and that now science has shown it that that makes that real. Right. And so how we kind of limit ourselves with our ways of knowing. And so throughout this, one of the things I really love about it, um, that she kind of, uh, really helps us understand. And this is, um, one of the quotes I love that she talks about, um, that she says, um, so I'll just read this. When you don't like the joke, you belong. When you're the only one of your race, disability, or sexuality, you belong. When you're terrified to speak in public, you belong. When you feel hurt or when you hurt, have hurt someone else, you belong. When you're down to your last dollars and the rent is due, you belong. When you feel overwhelmed by the horrors of human beings, you belong. When you have a debilitating illness, you belong. When everyone else is getting married, you belong. When you don't know what you're doing with your life, you belong. When the world feels like it's falling apart, you belong. When you feel like you don't belong, you belong. And then she helps us kind of delve through um, helping us see how it is we belong. And so I just wanted to point out a couple other things and then I'll stop rambling. But um, she nicely sets, sets us up, sets up the reader as pointing out, you know, the importance of grounding yourself especially when it comes to like things like meditation, um, knowing yourself, loving yourself. So this is stuff that Adam, you would totally love. Right. And there's a whole chapter about self-love. Um, I, um, I can go ahead. feel, I can feel ready to engage this text. You should. Cause it's something you need that will come to read. Yes. Uh, this is, Oh, I'm going to tell Rachel, this is the book that she should recommend to you for the summer. Oh my God. You asked. I'm going to, Yes, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. In fact, I'll even buy it. All right, I'll buy it and send it. Um, connect yourself is another one, and then finally, learning to be yourself. Um, and so, some of the things that really helped me along through this, and it took me a very long time to read it because I just kept getting really interested in everything that was she was talking about, um, is that she really does a nice job of helping us see the ways that we are connected. And as I said. Um, one of the things that I'm struggling with personally is to people that I, who, so individuals who identify, maybe they don't claim themselves as white supremacists, but their arguments indicate that they more along, you know, align with that mindset of white supremacy, um, that they are still a person, right? We may disagree completely, um, on that perspective of things, but that they still do matter. They still are a person. We are still connected in some way. Um, and learning that that doesn't mean I have to agree with them. It just is recognizing that they are still a, a human, you know, a, and that they still do matter 
in some way. Um, there's a great time where she talks about putting yourself and, and Adam, this kind of uh, talks about what you said of, um, you know, not of, if only you could do things the way I do things, you know, then this, right. And then you joked about with me walking around and moving all the time, um, and seeing things and how that's something that I do a lot too. But what she did, she then talks about her own personal story with that of learning on this journey of hers that she went through of, of learning that we all are, we are all connected in some way and we all belong is that she, it was during the time of George W. Bush presidency and how she completely disagreed with everything that he stood for. Um, but that she started thinking and she would always put herself in the, I don't understand how you could come to that conclusion on these things. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And we always do that. Um, and I would argue, I do that a lot now, especially with, with the last presidency and then, you know, the uh, situation on January 6th and all those things of how do you not see these things? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, that one thing it's important for us to understand is that we did not grow up in that person's life. That even if, you know, we like to say that I, I like to think that if I, um, were in that mindset that I wouldn't do those things, but that that's not truly possible because we don't have that person's life experiences. And so part of her process was recognizing that while she may have disagreed completely with what George, you know, decisions made by George Bush, that they were still connected and that she'll never truly be in that, uh, in his shoes because she was not raised the same way. Right. And so trying to better herself and better understand where people come from. And so the last thing I, I know I'm all over the place and I apologize as usual. Um, but one of the things I really like about this, because she kind of goes through, as I said, this whole notion of learning to look past or to recognize the role of your inner critic and what the inner critic does for you, but not letting the inner critic take over. Um, the comparing mind of comparing ourselves to different aspects of society and the dangers with that um, is that she says near the end, if you want a different world, we must imagine it. To imagine it, we must become intimate with our deepest wishes. We cannot imagine without a desire for creation, without longing for something different. We cannot connect to our deepest desire without simply being. We cannot long if we, cannot, if we can't feel what it is we long for. And then she goes into a meditation. I'm not going to make you guys do that. But um, anyway, what it did for me was, is, and it's still a work in progress, is still trying to recognize that the role my inner critic plays, um, as I talked about in the last episode, the role that my anxiety plays um, and, and recognize instead of, because when I start going down that spiral with my anxiety, you know, one of the first things that'll happen is I'll fight the feeling of anxiety. And so then I'm now fighting two things. And so it's trying to remind myself that while I don't like that feeling I get during a very anxious moment, that there is a reason it's happening. And so to, you know, treat it as, as I said, last time, a persona of saying, I know you're there, you're there to take care of me, but I'm in charge, right? So welcome to the party, but I'm in charge. Um, and so that's, that was really nice for me in this book. And so it's something I definitely recommend again, it's called you belong by seven, a Selassie. Um, and it's just a beautiful book about learning about who you are and where you come from. So that's all. That was, that was so nice. I felt like it would go very well with one that Adam was leading to end with that. And as I said, uh, Rachel Pryor, 
I will um, shout out to you that I will make sure that I get a copy of this book to you sometime <laughs> before next summer uh, so that you can have it ready to go when you recommend a new book for Adam. And then he can give us his his view of it. That uh, might be a fun point counterpoint version of what to do at the end of episodes. You could read a yeah. book and I could read one and we'll see what we both find. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll have Seven Ace Lossy there ready to roll and she can come in. <laughs> <laughs> She'll take us both to task. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs>